and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm in the remote recording studio today with my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, Medea and I spoke with Malcolm Harris about his latest book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. One of the things that I really enjoyed about not just reading this book, but also about the conversation that we had with Malcolm, is that it peels back the kind of glittery sense of the history of Silicon Valley that we tend to get, you know, that it's all about innovators and it's about brand new gee whiz inventions and forming a brand new world and a kind of utopian technocratic cast. But what Malcolm's history in our conversation pulls out is that there is a sublayer to all of that, which is these histories of Anglo, Anglo-American settler colonialism in the West. There's the racial capitalism that undergirds a lot of the development of the West, and in particular, this area of Northern California that he's talking about. And that so much of that is kind of what we're told not to focus on, right? It's the thing that we're, that we're not reminded of, in other words, when we think about Silicon Valley and Northern California. Yeah. And so much of what Palo Alto has accomplished is like a day-to-day sort of almost unsible effect, I think, for everybody. You know, you you have your iPhone, you have your computer, you have your, you live with these things on a day-to-day basis. They It's hard to remember where and how this stuff is made, let alone think about the history of the place. I should also say, they don't actually come from there. The design comes from there. The right. actual work exactly. does not very much does not come from Palo Alto. And so, yeah, so this book feels particularly sort of important and relevant in that way to just keep remembering something that, as Malcolm Harris says, you know, we're constantly forgetting. And just before we jump to that interview, I want to call out for our listeners that Ben Baitler actually reviewed this book on LARB's website. So if you want to check out the review, which is kind of tackles a couple of different issues that maybe we didn't talk about in this particular radio show episode, definitely log on to LARB's website at lareviewofbooks.org and check it out. All right. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with Malcolm. Let's do it. We have Malcolm Harris with us on the line today. Malcolm is a freelance writer and the author of Kids These Days, The Making of Millennials, and Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. A native of Northern California, he attended Palo Alto High School and graduated from the University of Maryland College Park. That Palo Alto High School experience is a jumping off point of sorts and a dark one for the book that Malcolm joins us to discuss today, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Malcolm's hefty new book, which we might describe as a history of California told through a Marxist lens, opens with a grim reflection on the spate of suicides that darkened his high school years. Teens who took their lives on the train tracks over which Leland Stanford built Palo Alto and much of the booming Western economy that has made the Bay Area and California in general such a dominant pole of global wealth, innovation, and the allure of good, easy living. It's that darker side to this history that Malcolm brings into focus throughout Palo Alto, a history of Silicon Valley that traces the region's celebrated ideologies, technologies, and policies to its roots in Anglo-settler colonialism, 
racial capitalism, and the ravages of an extractive system that builds glittering new worlds and opportunities for a few, too often at the expense of everyone else. Malcolm explores how the histories of big tech, the military-industrial complex, and Stanford University converge in the story of Palo Alto, braided together in a way that at once builds the world we have today at the cost of a potentially better one. Welcome to the show, Malcolm. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This book is very much a, a history, a very thorough history of Palo Alto and the region. But I, I thought we could start off with your childhood there and your growing up, because as Eric mentioned, that is part of the introduction. So I'm curious if we could just talk about what you understood about the place that where you were growing up when you were a kid and maybe when you started being a little bit more critical about that place. Well, I think it's basically as long as I grew up there, I had a pretty critical understanding in some senses. I really wanted to get out of California and Palo Alto for most of my childhood because it seemed like kind of a like stultified place away from like culture and like intellectual pursuits in a lot of ways for me. I wanted to like go to the East Coast where like politics and books and stuff were happening. And I was aware there was this commercial center for a lot of people, but I wasn't very interested in the internet or computers at that point in my life. And it wasn't until I moved away at 18 that I looked back on California from the East Coast and really saw it for the first time as the center of the world. Because when I was growing up, it had this sort of oppressively normal feeling where the suburbs that I moved to when I was eight, you know, Palo Alto, looked so much like the suburbs that I saw on whatever TV show, every TV show, right? It was very Boy Meets World, very like three kids, mom stays home, dad goes to work, one-story house, you know, like everyone lives in one-story houses around on the cul-de-sac, and you know the neighbors, that kind of situation. At a time when that was fleetingly rare in America, it felt like this insulated bubble of American suburbia, and that was scary because it had been at the same time there was this dramatic gain of wealth that you saw around. Some people were very rich and it was hard to explain why. And also this violence where children were dying by suicide at an unexplainable rate. There's something to that, like, especially hearing you lay it out this way, the unexplainable. I think that's a kind of thing that is both the allure and also the kind of cloak that the area that you're talking about, Silicon Valley, casts itself for, or at least how it's casted in kind of the mold of the popular imagination. And by that, I mean this kind of place where big booms are happening, you know, even back in the gold rush days, which you kind of start the book with. Big booms are happening. Everything seems like it's unfathomable potential for wealth, but then also it's changing the world in ways that we don't always understand. Do you think there's something of that to the mystique of Silicon Valley that kind of makes it this unimpeachable in some views, like paragon of human capacity and the building of new worlds. Yeah, well, it's a project from the beginning about enhancing human capacity, particular people's capacity in the interest of a particular historical project. And so they set out to make super people, you know, and they come up with a bunch of different ways to do that, whether that's through mining engineering techniques that are going to allow an individual to show up at a mine and make it twice as productive through their understanding of it more than any individual labor ever could, or through, you know, radio tools that are allowing radar jammers to win wars from inside air-conditioned bunkers 
somewhere else away from the conflict, you know? Or even a great example is that Palo Alto becomes obsessed with LSD. And when we have this like hippie story about why Palo Alto loves LSD and the Grateful Dead were there and all that. But why, if you look at the history, why the institutional leaders who really brought it into town were obsessed is because it's such a powerful chemical compound. And they said any compound that's this powerful, that just a little bit yields this huge effect, got to be good for something. Like we got to find there's something, something here. Like, you know, this is just so our style is like it's really powerful, and we could make a bunch of it, and that would be super powerful. And you know, this is just like how they think, and they explore a bunch of possible uses for LSD on this idea that this is just such a powerful object, and for them it serves somewhat the same purpose as computers because they're both about creating powerful people who are inordinately powerful. This is maybe moving backwards a little bit, but I want to make sure that we do talk a little bit about the very early history that that you very much explore in the book, partly because I think very much of our associations with Palo Alto, at least mine, are super contemporary. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the indigenous tribes that were there and the founding of the place and I know you know very a lot about a lot about it. So it just for listeners who might not really have a sense of any of that, tell us a little bit about the founding of Palo Alto. Yeah, and it's the LA Review of Books. We can do a little California history here. Let's right? do it. Let's do it. So the when I was growing up, we were starting to be taught that the tribes around the Bay Area were called the Ohlone, that there was a tribe called the Ohlone that was around the Bay Area. That's a sort of misrepresentation, let's say, of the products of Spanish colonialism, where the Spanish colonization of Alta California was pretty thin, but it was very coastal. And it was centered on these feudal missions that were run by the church. And so the missions in the Bay Area transform native life in the surrounding area around these missions. And the Groups that were commonly referred to as tribelets, which is, I don't really like that term, but communities, linguistic uh, tribal communities around the Bay, were agglomerated into this idea of the Ohlone by the their common interactions with these missions in the Bay Area. And so when Anglo-American colonization comes around, you have a feudal California system that is not really able to incorporate indigenous peoples labor consistently. And so it is not a totalizing infrastructure for the area. And again, it's a little thin and far between in terms of colonization of the area. Major impacts in terms of disease, but is not like directly conflictual political system. This changes when Anglo-Americans strike gold and colonize the area with purpose and bring it into the United States. At that point, they have to turn every piece of land into a potential gold mine. They have to turn every waterway into a potential fuel for gold mining, right? They use water to do hydraulic gold mining. Any resources is going to be redirected towards the production of capital and the accumulation of capital. And this includes native labor, as well as settler labor and everyone's labor. And this is incompatible with the continued existence of Native people in California as living in Native communities in relation to their specific pieces of land. Because this settler plan of constant genericization, turning everything generic, right? Every piece of land is potentially money. All water is potentially money. is incompatible with the existence of particular 
Native communities. And very quickly through this sort of synthesis of grassroots vigilantism and federal government planning and support annihilate the Native communities as they exist in the area and proletarianize those communities into a working class that is then sort of retroactively Mexicanized. And so you see cases like the San Jose Mercury Mine and the surrounding area where they talk about, oh, there are no indigenous people left, no Indians here at all. It's just Mexican workers. And it's like, well, <laughs> since when, right? What is, makes these people Mexican as opposed to indigenous is in relation to these settlers. So that's a brief history of the early uh, California colonization. We could go on. I mean, it's really under-discussed, the settler colonial history of California. Even when we do talk about the settler colonial history of North America, California gets left out of that story a lot. Yeah, and I wonder if part of that is because it it feels like a messy history and something that I think you outline really interestingly in this book is that it feels like with, and I think we should talk briefly about Stanford, like a lot of people being in the right place at the right time. And as you sort of point out in this book, being willing to enact forces that are perhaps larger than they are. And that feels like somewhat tricky to talk about, right? Because so much of the way that we discuss history in the United States in particular is that that it was sort of determined that people went out and explored the frontier, that we fought off the British, et cetera, et cetera. Like, but this feels like a little bit more like people were there and they did really horrible, brutal things in the service of maybe they didn't quite even know what, but it was, you know, ultimately it was just money. Well, and stealing land just very directly. And so the synthesis of vigilantism and federal government support is a foundational violence of California, but it's also an interesting like economic model and an fi- interesting financial model for this kind of violence, which is you had these white settlers show up and in exchange for participating in these marauding bands that are driving Native people off their land and murdering them, they were rewarded with land. And with that land, they were then able to petition the federal government for retroactive payment for their work as part of these mobs. And so it was a self-financing sort of colonialism. Those mechanisms were inventions, right? You think of like, well, colonialism is a long history, right? People taking land from other people is as long as history or whatever. This is a very specific mode and specifically destructive mode that we saw and uniquely. And that's why it's, it's worth looking at it specifically separate from the Spanish history. And that's why I start sort of where I do It's not that the Spanish history doesn't matter or it wasn't devastating for the area, but that the specifically capitalist mode of accumulation that starts in the mid-19th century with Anglo-American settlement is the object of the book. To kind of move forward but stay on the same trend, can you talk about, I was fascinated by the story of the railroad construction And there's also a bunch of micro stories inside of there, you know, like the Bank of Italy that then becomes the Bank of America. That was one I was definitely talking to my husband about as soon as I had read that whole passage. It was like, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. Like, it's a wild story. The development of the railroad is also a very interesting kind of lockstep movement between capitalist prospectors and the U.S. government to kind of both do a land grab, but also create a route to making even more money through the dramatic, you know, and before then kind of not quite done 
massive movement of products and resources across the country. So can you talk, because it seems like this was a tremendous moment for Northern California and kind of made San Francisco a second type of boom after the gold rush years. Can you just talk about that period a little bit and how that developed more of this Palo Alto system that you talk about throughout the book? Definitely pre-Palo Alto system, right? Pre-Palo Alto, because the railroad is how Leland Stanford's making his money in the first place. It's the foundational tensions that produce Palo Alto even. Because the associates, who are these four guys, they're Sacramento shopkeepers, right? The petty bourgeoisie of Northern California, which at this point in the mid-19th century makes them the only bourgeoisie, right? There's not a lot of capital out there. There's a little like, you know, the Rothschilds have a guy who puts some money in some mining operations sometimes or whatever. There's like a little bit of capital but really not very much. It's mostly just like some guys. And some guys from all around the region, right? There are some guys from Northern Mexico, some guys from Chile, some guys from China, some guys from France, some guys from Russia, a lot of some guys, you know, on this frontier, as well as whole indigenous societies. And somewhat of a thin Mexican rancher society on top of that. When you connect the railroad, the railroad has a problem when you're unable to get one out to the coast before the Civil War. And when you think about it, it becomes obvious why, which is that both halves of the United States wanted their own railroad, right? The South wanted the railroad to go through the South and be a slave railroad that's going to pull California into the Union on a pro-slavery basis and incorporate it into the South for this war that's coming. And the North wants to do the opposite. They want a Northern route that's going to secure California for the Union. They can't get a majority through Congress because they're caught in tension, the same tensions that will soon erupt in the Civil War. But when they erupt in the Civil War, that means the South leaves, it's really easy to pass the Northern Railroad. And so the railroad, the transcontinental passes, and these guys, these shopkeepers in Sacramento who have invested in this sort of wacky railroad plan that they were like, if this railroad plan that we that this guy came to us with doesn't work, we'll just turn it into a toll road. They were looking to hedge it like from the beginning. They wanted to get out as soon as possible. They didn't like believe in the railroad. They just made a bet. And it turns out that bet pays off really good with the establishment of the transcontinental as a tool in the Civil War, which is really what it is at the beginning, is to solidify the Union in the North. So it's a military project from the beginning, both in colonization and the taking of land, as well as its incorporation in the Union with the transcontinental. And the transcontinental, the building of the transcontinental and the establishment of the transcontinental triggers a bunch of class tensions in the West on this new model of capital and labor. Because the people who, the settlers, every, all those guys I was talking about were there to go find a nugget of gold Maybe they were there to set up a bar, you know, or a restaurant or something. They were not there to, like, work on the railroad. They were not there to work in a factory. That's why they left, right? They're not looking to be proletarians. They're looking to be settlers. That's why you go west. With the connection of the railroad, suddenly wages are way down. Prices of commodities are way down. The prices that you can charge go way down. Capital is empowered vis-a-vis labor. And this really pisses off all these white workers who are there planning to be way richer, who put in a lot of money and a lot of risk into this trip out to the coast. Not necessarily an easy thing to do. And now felt like, well, shit, I could have stayed in Chicago, you know, or like I should have stayed in Connecticut or whatever. 
this is unfair. We have to struggle for some position in the West here. And so that tension, Leland Stanford, who we talk about, who's at one point serves a term as governor of California and is head of the railroad, really the front man for the railroad, because he's the least smart and the least competent out of these four associates, they put Leland Stanford forward because like, you know, this is the 1870s, this is the Paris Commune, People get investigated. You know, the government's going to get mad that they, because they didn't make their money like straight up on this railroad. They made their money off like land contracting companies and like rail contracting companies and all sorts of like really sketchy contracting stuff is how they made their, really made their money. And so they put Leland Stanford, who's like the goofiest one out of the four of them, forward as the front man. And so he's the front man for capital in the West and people hate him and they know where he lives, which is the top of what we now call Knob Hill. Then it was Nabob Hill in San Francisco, where all of the associates had their big mansions, which is like, that sounds nice, but then the workers know where to like show up to yell at you through your window. And this is a problem that the capitalist class faces in cities around the world where they live in the 1870s, right? It's like, I want to live in the city. I want to live in the biggest house in the city. Like, that's where rich people live. That's where kings live. Everyone knows where the king lives. Why shouldn't everyone know where I live? It's like, well, you don't control the army in the same way. And this becomes a a real problem for the capitalist class is like, people can show up at their house. They don't have gated communities. People can and do show up at your house. And in some cities do end up burning down your house, right? And constantly threaten to. And so we know the solution now is to move to the suburbs. At the time, the suburbs didn't exist yet. So if you wanted to move your family to the suburbs to escape class conflict in the city that you caused, you have to also invent the suburbs. And so that's what Leland Stanford does with Palo Alto is he invents a suburb to take his family and escape from the class conflict of the city And in this suburb, in this 8,000 or up to 11,000 acres that he owns at the top, I think, everyone works for him, right? If there's a worker, it's someone who works directly for him that he's empowered to dominate directly. It's not some, like, worker class who's going to show up at your house. Like, they're not going to show up in Palo Alto. And so this is the foundation of what this place is, is the, the exhaust valve for these tensions of the 1870s and this particular capitalist mode of accumulation. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. I have Emmanuel Aduma back on the line. Emmanuel is the author most recently of I Am Still With You, A Reckoning with Silence, Inheritance, and History. It's a memoir. And he's here to give us a book recommendation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kate. I have three books to recommend. The first is The Return by Hisham Mata. I believe it won the Pulitzer Prize a few while ago, I think 2016 or something. And it's a book in which he tries to find out what happened to his father, who had been a a dissident, a political dissident during the Gaddafi regime in Libya. And it's his attempt to reckon with the the imprisonment of his father and the lack of information about his father's eventual fate. The second book I would like to recommend is Afterlives by Abdurazak Ghana, the Nobel Prize winning writer. 
The question that I feel like Ghana is, is sort of dealing with is how do we remember if we do not know what has been erased, really? And so in Afterlives, it's the story of a time in, in East Africa, I think around Zanzibar to be specific, where he sort of documents the ordinary lives of people during the First World War. And it's the story of, of a family of a man who essentially disappears after the war and his nephew eventually at the end of the book goes to look for him in Germany and finds out some unsavory details about his life. But the idea is to signal to the extraordinariness, I would say, of ordinary lives that unfold during a historical moment. And then finally, the third book I would recommend is A Spell of Good Things by Ayobami Adebayo. It's her second novel. And it's really a story of two families in Nigeria, one wealthy and the other poor. But that framing might, should not, I don't want to give away the whole story, but the idea is that their lives collide in unexpected ways um, by the end of the book. And as with her first novel, Stay With Me, we see, I mean, she's just a brilliant storyteller who is able to really capture the lives and emotions of people, you know, living, going about what you call their domestic lives, so, so to speak. So she does that with such compelling, in such a compelling manner. So those are my three book recommendations. Great. So the first two, definitely, I thought, oh, knowing your book, having read your book, were those influences on your book? Did you read those before writing your own book? The first book, for sure, The Return, is such an important book for me, actually, because I think it was the book that gave me the freedom, the freedom to feel that I didn't need to resolve my uncle's story. Um, so, you know, because it's, it's a little bit more linear than mine, because, you know, this is his father. He has more details to the information and record. In fact, he does meet Gaddafi's son at some point in the book to ask about his father's fate. But ultimately, it's the book that made me feel like I didn't, I didn't necessarily need to say, oh, this is exactly what happened to my uncle, because he also doesn't, I hope I'm not giving too much away, he also doesn't get to exactly how his father died or when his father died, particularly. And then Afterlives, of course, you know, historical fiction for me, especially one that doesn't simply retell the large historical events, but deals with the the lives in between or that unfolds at its own pace without necessarily dramatizing it according to, you know, big battles or, you know, war and all that. For me, I felt that that was similar to what I was trying to do in the sense that I also wanted to hint at how the political is invariably personal or the historical is invariably personal in its, in its manifestations. And the third book, because, you know, Ayobami Adebayo, I mean, I should say full disclosure that she's my wife. So, uh, but this is, <laughs> this is not, this is, I mean, we've been friends, we were friends for many, many years before we got married. And she was one of the first writers that I really met. But her storytelling capacities is just for me, <laughs> peerless. And I speak both as biased and unbiased. <laughs> I see. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, great. Well, so we don't have to ask how you learned about that last book. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It also just came out, actually came out a week or two weeks ago. Oh, wow. So 
we both are doing pause, <laughs> which is a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, those all sound wonderful. Could you give us the titles and the authors again? First book is The Return by Hisham Mata. The second book is Afterlives by Abdul Razak Ghana. And the third book is A Spell of Good Things by Ayobami Adebayo. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Yes, thank you. That was Emmanuel Aduma. His latest book is I Am Still With You. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Now that we're sort of talking more about Stanford, Leland Stanford, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the university that is later founded and the way in which education is weaponized, essentially, and how through education, the ethos of Palo Alto sort of begins to spread far and wide until it's maybe worldwide. So can you talk a little bit about how Stanford begins to legitimize the Palo Alto experience and the Palo Alto project? So Stanford starts as a horse training farm and then becomes a university after the death of Leland Stanford Jr. It's important to remember that it's Leland Stanford Jr. University. And he's the only child of Leland Stanford and Jane Lathrop Stanford. And I tell about his like insanely privileged existence through his yeah. 13 years. It's pretty like some wild stories that kid had. Sounds nice. Truly saw the, yeah, <laughs> like drinking coffee with the Sultan, you know, <laughs> backstage at the opera, at the vines for the wineries and really sees the world. The phrase that you you write that stuck with me was that he sees the world in his mother's arms, but he's simultaneously brought into this cosmopolitan existence, but like coddled. Yeah. And that he's one of the first of these like elite children to experience that new form of acculturation, even that they like invent this idea of bring your child to work day was like something they came up with more or less this class of Californians. But so he dies unexpectedly. And his parents decide they're going to invest the inheritance plan for him into this institution. And the form of this institution changes. Leland Stanford Sr. dies. Jane Lathrop Stanford takes it over. And she builds, not just plans to build, but builds the largest museum in the world. It's the Met for the West Coast. Pretty amazing in Palo Alto. She is murdered It's hard to say under suspicious circumstances. We don't have to say that anymore. She's murdered. She's poisoned to death. If you're poisoned to death twice, then it counts as being murdered, I think, which she is. And there's an earthquake that takes out the museum and is sort of treated by historians as a, like, divine judgment on the Jane Lathrop Stanford plan. And the man who takes over the university is this man, David Starr Jordan, who the founders recruited from Indiana University, and he may or may not have been part of the plot to murder Jane Lathrop Stanford and take over this university. And he's super invested in eugenics. He's a like global figure in eugenics. And he has a plan for Stanford University that involves training not just elite graduates, but elite graduates who are specifically suited to new areas in the economy where they can make a disproportionate difference. 
And so they focus early on mining engineering and the star student of the first, not the star student, but the star graduate, you know, star guy of the first Stanford class is this guy, Herbert Hoover, who comes as an orphan to the first class of Stanford University. And it's sort of an interesting parallel because the one child, Leland Stanford Jr., who dies and the parentless child, Herbert Hoover, who takes his place. And he is sort of Leland Stanford Jr., in my mind, and he becomes very quickly the globalizer of Stanford. He runs around the world. He's a hugely important mine consultant, mining engineer, and then mining financier. And he's bringing in Stanford. He's touring the world, going to places wherever there's colonization going on, whatever resources are being sucked out of the ground, whether it's South Africa or China or Russia or Myanmar, Australia, Australia famously. I think Peru at one point too as well. He's really, he's touring the world and he's bringing Stanford buddies with him all over the place to run these projects. And he becomes famous, rich and famous and this celebrated Stanford graduate and really marks the success of the Stanford program from the beginning, the immediate success of the Stanford program. And he of course then becomes president of the United States, which hard to be more successful than that. Yeah, and that also then kind of launches, I mean, this has been a through line even in our discussion here, but certainly through the book, in the kind of ways that Stanford and the Bay Area become also an important locus for military technology and the kind of development of military technology. Can you talk a little bit about that as kind of this? So we've talked about, for example, we have the kind of settler colonialism, the racial capitalism that's braided through all of this history. And now the kind of like military industrial complex that it seems kind of like really takes off during this like Hoover period and then on through the kind of 1970s. Yeah, well, it's a real switch because David Starr Jordan and these first group of Stanford eugenicists are really anti-war. They have this idea of war that now in the age of gunpowder, war is dysgenic, that doesn't matter what a, you know how strong or brave you are, you're just as likely to get shot. And David Starr Jordan has this line that now the clown can shoot down the hero. And in an era where the clown can shoot down the hero, war is bad because there's no telling what genes are going to get wasted in war. Versus the old, you know, noble Tolstoy war, where if you're the, the most noble genes, you're going to be riding around on your horse, slaying everyone with your sword, and you're going to come back fine. Now someone can shoot you off your horse, right? Some goon can just shoot you off your horse. So he's a peace lobbyist. He's against the war because he doesn't want to see these genes spoiled. During World War I, Herbert Hoover is doing running the food program where he's the only guy who's allowed to cross the front in World War I at the beginning to arrange for the feeding of Belgium with German permission. And as part of this, again, always bringing Stanford guys with him, he brings Vernon Kellogg, who's a Stanford professor and eugenicist, to liaise with the German high command. And Kellogg writes this book about his experience talking with the and being with the German high command before the U.S. enters the war. And his conclusion, it's obviously affected by the later entrance of the U.S. into the war, but his conclusion as someone who's an evolutionist, who's really interested in the ideas and who sees in Germany the widespread adoption of these ideas that he's really interested in, he comes back and says, like, these guys are psycho. We believe in evolution and eugenics and, like, improving things through this, like, peaceful development of positive eugenics. Like, these people think that it means that they should conquer the world and kill everybody. 
And so he's seeing like the proto-Nazi eugenics in Germany. And he comes back with the sort of bad news for the eugenics movement that we need to figure out a way to do war. And we need to figure out a way to do war that doesn't waste this genetic material, that doesn't waste the best, and finds a way to, in fact, put it to work to win these wars, to win wars through science in a way that's not dysgenic, and that Germany's already figuring this out. And Germany's already has an education system that's preparing its society for war, and we don't. And we need to figure this out very soon. And this is an attitude that the Stanford community adopts pretty quickly, not least because Louis Terman, who's one of the recruits from Indiana, who's leading the psychology department at Stanford, and who's reinventing the IQ test, someone who's most famous for that, his son, Frederick Terman, turns 18 just as the draft age for World War I gets lowered to 18. It's like the same month. And he's already tested his son and knows that this kid is a genius, a literal genius, whatever, however you want to measure it. Of course, the, you know, the genius experiments dad's kid is, of course, a genius. Not, not surprising. But he does earn it, right? He proves it later. But so this is a very like, this is a personal question for Terman, right? Is that like, when he talks about wasting good genes in the war, he's talking about his own genes. He's talking about his 18-year-old child who's like, if he's going to get sent to the front and just mowed down, our society is done for. Like, we're screwed. We can't win long-term like that. And so the first use of group IQ tests ends up being on World War I draftees in order to segregate them on this five-point scale so that people who are testing very high are removed from harm's way such that they won't be killed in trench warfare. And so that the C students can go die in trench warfare, the A students can stay at college doing ROTC or whatever, and the F students, we should probably figure out something else to do with them because we don't want to give them a gun because like, it's probably not going to work out great. And it's not clear how much the DOD actually implements these recommendations, but that's the beginning of IQ testing. And then he takes those same tests back after the war to Stanford, where they're propagated. But so that's the beginning of Stanford as a military institution, which it really then is directed towards. And all the like avionics, the early transistor stuff, all military projects, the first set of silicon chips all go into nuclear missiles. From there, you can draw a real straight line all through it. Even the first laptops I talk about end up like being used as the tools to run Iran-Contra. Thank you, Malcolm, for that extremely easy transition to obviously what we have to talk about, which is the founding of Silicon Valley and why Palo Alto becomes this tech hub and why that's bad. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll get to that maybe, but... What happens? Why Why Silicon Valley end up in Palo Alto? And what does the tech world, has it rot in California? There are two answers, right? There's the 19th century answer and the 20th century answer. And I do want to give the 19th century answer really quick because I think it is important, even though we're moving into the 20th century, because people think that people only know the 20th century answer. They don't know the 19th century answer as much, which is that from its beginning as this last link in the global capitalist chain, California was always super high tech. And at the beginning, you know, before the gold rush, California is this furthest corner of the world as far as Western society, so to speak, is concerned. Way far away from everything. No one can hold on to it. But once it gets incorporated into the capitalist system, 
it's immediately a lab for high technology, partly because labor is really scarce. And so early California farms, for example, are way more technologically advanced than farms in other parts of the United States, not even though they're the last ones to be established, but because they're the last ones to be established, right? And so you see this dialectical reversion of the last incorporated into the capitalist system becomes the first most technologically advanced in this global system. And so California, the Bay Area, was high-tech from the beginning. Then we have this, the 20th century story, the post-war story, which is about William Shockley and the establishment of Shockley Semiconductor, which is in Palo Alto, and it's established in Palo Alto, in the Palo Alto area, in the industrial park at Stanford, because Shockley has these deep relationship to Stanford in the community, because that's where his mom went to college, where she studied mining engineering, and that's where his dad taught college, where he taught mining engineering. Right, So you can see the the straight connection, right? It's because it's a high-tech area. And so when he, after he is invents, is co-invents the point contact transistor and decides he's going to start a company that's going to build semiconducting transistors, transistors out of semiconducting materials, he's going to start it in Palo Alto in this industrial park where he has these relations to this community that's building in this high-tech area. And the group that he recruits, and he recruits them from around the world according to this idea of intelligence testing that he directly inherits from this Palo Alto milieu, right? He's ludicrous about intelligence testing, Bill Shockley is. And he gets this group of, this very diverse group of white guys from around the country. And I say that like jokingly, but also seriously, right? He's getting like a Jewish refugee from New York, he's getting a preacher's son from Iowa, this is the post-war like shuffling of the white male personnel within America, where these guys went to school, went to the army and went to school based on the government's understanding of them as useful weapons to the future of America. And he gathers a whole bunch of these guys, young guys in the Bay Area, and then can't manage them at all, does a terrible, terrible job managing them. They quit very quickly because he's so awful at what he does. And they start a different firm called Fairchild Semiconductor. And there is where they really start Silicon Valley from. And then they eventually leave and start other companies, including Intel, and really build the industry that we know Silicon Valley for. And that's the 20th century stories that Shockley sort of brings the ball into town and then promptly fumbles it and the seeds spread everywhere. There's your mixed metaphor. As we kind of are moving forward in time, I mean, I think it's like, I'm pretty sure all of us are millennials here. So there was a kind of millennial dream or a dream of the millennial generation that as you got into tech, and part of this is about the mythology of, you know, landmark figures like Steve Jobs that you talk about. And even though what I love is the way you unpack actually the history of Apple in a very different way than we're typically used to hearing about it. It's more extractive than you may think. But this kind of idea that you could go into tech and you could achieve several things that were important to a more liberally minded millennial generation. And that would be, one, I can have a comfortable life and in times of economic precarity, that only becomes more important. And then also that I could work for a company that was if I didn't think about it too hard, that was doing quote unquote good things and or was responsive to the kind of cultural, political and social commitments of its employee base. 
But now, as we've kind of seen with the way that, you know, I guess I would call it as like Elon Musk's reign of terror at Twitter, but that's certainly not like the only place that you've seen it. But you've seen these kind of Silicon Valley barons wrest that kind of control back, which probably was always at the corporate level anyways. But there's a sense that this, that millennial dream might have just been a dream. So I'm just wondering what you think about like the more liberal-minded and utopian view of Silicon Valley and quote-unquote tech jobs versus the kind of hard reality that we're coming to grips with maybe in a more forceful way today. I mean, I remember the year 2000, right? I was there and I had... uh you know, cultural opinions and opinions about society. And the tech were not the bad guys, right? The bad guys were Walmart and the bad guys were Clear Channel. The problem wasn't uh, Facebook or whatever. The problem was Clear Channel owned all the radio stations and decided that they weren't going to play any music that was against the war, right? Like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that was the that was our like immediate problem with capital, right? And so when someone said like, oh, you can post stuff on the internet, in relation, that seems in tension with the powers that be, right? It seemed anti-monopolist. Finally, we can post whatever songs we want and Clear Channel can't stop us. And like, no one will have to listen to the, just the Clear Channel stations anymore. And we can rip them onto CDs. There's all other kinds of problems yep. for like kind yeah, of a team Napster, that that was fixing. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. So the internet seems very progressive at that point, especially in relation to these big companies. Even something like Amazon, right? It's like, well, it's not Walmart. And if you look at the videos from the 90s, right, it's a bunch of like dreadlock dudes like in a warehouse in Seattle, like rocking out with their headphones, putting books in sleeves and mailing them to you. Like, that's tight. Like, why was it better to do Walmart? Like, disruption, cool, man. We can all work less now because we're automating stuff. And there's a utopian strain of thinking there. And there were reasons to believe in it. And to believe we were on a, the progressive side or whatever, that tech was this progressive part of the world. That was wrong, pretty conclusively and quickly proven wrong. And looking back, it's easy to see how it was wrong because people keep making the same mistake, right? People made the same mistake in the 50s and early 60s. We're like, I'm going to move to California and work in computers and it's going to be great. Wages are super high. I'm going to go work in computers, make a fortune, and like live the easy life. And instead, they use offshoring and piece work in unventilated kitchens throughout the Bay Area to drive the price of that labor down. You know, they're offshoring production to Taiwan to cut labor costs, right? And you see the same thing in the 80s. You see the same thing in the 2000s. You see the same thing now, you know? There are these cycles constantly. And every time you're like, wow, the shine is really off Silicon Valley this time, you know? <laughs> like, I guess it's not I guess it's not all it's cracked up to be. And then like two seconds later, you're like, wow, this robot is talking to me. Like, how does it know me? Oh my God, this changes everything. Like, look at it, look at it go. My job is over. Like, we don't need writers anymore. <laughs> You know, and Silicon Valley succeeds through this forgetting. And that's a way to exceed the limits, to disrupt the limits. Forgetting is key to that process because you have to forget the bus in order to invent Uber, right? Or you have to like forget about temp work in order to invent gig work, right? You have to forget that things already exist in order to acquire the capital that adheres to new disruptive ideas, 
And to do that, you have to sort of not know what happened yesterday or the day before that. So I guess in some ways, this book is not what you're supposed to do, right? You're not supposed to remember all this stuff because then it looks like a mechanism as opposed to individual acts of invention and imagination. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what other ways you think we can counter the kind of forces that have been so established in Palo Alto and now globally. That's half of the history that I'm trying to tell, right? Because I think that's the, to talk about capital, which is the history of capitalism, you have to talk about labor, right? Because that's the other side of the relation always. You're never going to have capital without labor, except in the reigning history of Silicon Valley, right? Where it's all about capital. It's all about the founders. It's all about the inventors and never about the labor. We only worry about who wires the first computer. We never worry about who wires all the computers after the first computer. The invention is what matters. The labor isn't. The design is what matters. The labor that actually builds the thing every time after that isn't what matters. And so we can learn from the history of that struggle because the history of that struggle is constant. And you never are able to exploit people, exploit people's labor without incurring resistance and even organized resistance, because you're always organizing labor in order to exploit it and organizing capitalist society in order to reproduce it. You're always going to generate organized responses. And I was really surprised how many and how deep the history of that is in Palo Alto itself, that I didn't think that Palo Alto had a like late 19th century, early 20th century history of radicalism that was distinct from but related to other parts of the Bay Area. I thought it was too new, right? There weren't any communists in 1900 Palo Alto. It was still a Leland Stanfordville. And it's just not true. It's crazy how untrue that is. And so people have been fighting against these forces and experimenting in new ways to fight against these forces all the way through. And I think by studying that history, we could learn just as much as by studying the history of the other side. One thing that I kind of, as we wrap up here, you know, we had on LARB's website, Ben Baitler reviewed your book. And one of the things that he suggests in the review is that the UC grad student strike, the kind of more recent strike, may be the latest in the chain of labor disputes that call into question both the uses and abuses of education as resource and kind of people manufacture that you discuss in Palo Alto. I mean, I guess here with the UC strike, we're kind of like hanging on to Berkeley over there in in the Bay Area as the connection to Palo Alto. But can you talk a little bit about your read on those kind of efforts or these more like recent developments in the Palo Alto area and that kind of like education space? I think it is a continuation of the lessons learned over the 20th century in some ways that there is this reliance on, I don't think it's a, a stretch to include the UCs at all, because there's a reliance on what the Stanford's called the children of California in order to perpetuate this system, right? And that's what the UCs are all about, is the same project of training the personnel to run this project. And there's always a danger there in the same, because it is a kind of work, and it presents the same kind of danger that other kinds of employment provide, which is that you're relying on people that you're planning to or you are actively exploiting. And so we see this in the history. I talk about in the UC system and in the Cal State system, these campaigns where students were blowing up their computer centers because they saw them as war tools correctly. They understood them as war tools. And someone asked, reporter asked the 
a UC administrator who was in charge of these programs, why can't you just keep the radicals out of the computer centers? Why are you letting these people into the computer centers in the first place? And he said, giving the example of the Fresno State Computer Center, which was molotov by a student who had trained at the computer center the previous semester, that these were on occasion the same students that they were training for computer jobs were the ones who were coming back to molotov them or blow them up. And that it was impossible to exclude them because they were the same people. They were dependent on these people and their ability to learn and train to use these systems. And that made them vulnerable. And managing that vulnerability and managing that inherent tension is important project for the powers that be. And you can draw it directly to this UC strike, right? Because the solution to that problem was to divest from the state education systems, right? To make it students' job and to push the cost burden of this education onto students to make them less likely to join political efforts. And this is the consequence, the strikes now are the consequences, the direct consequences of that divestment, which was a counter-revolutionary plan to that same tension at the computer centers. So we got a really tight history, right? It's not that long. You know, it's 60 years, sounds like a long time, but in like political history, it's a snap of the fingers, right? In California history, that's like a third of it. That's like a third of Anglo-American California history. But in political history, real snap of the fingers. Your book ends on going back to the indigenous tribe, the Ohlone, and in the question of restitution and reparation and giving land back. I wonder if you could talk about that as how, what kind of reparation you think that might be? You say that it's, you know, unlikely, as we all know, <laughs> to happen. Why suggest it and why end on that note? People have responded to that conclusion in a bunch of different ways. There's a constant demand for books like this to end with some sort of policy suggestion, right? You say that we have all these problems in this 200-year history. What should we do about it? And so the return of this land in this case, I think, is a pretty rational, pragmatic policy solution, right? We have a case where we have 8,000 acres that's been held unsold since the 19th century. We have a politically constituted, not just the Ohlone people, not just indigenous people. We have the Muwekma Ohlone tribe, which are the acknowledged ancestral relations of the people who that land was taken from. We have anthropological records that connect them straight through to the Stanford era, when the land was taken. So the evidence is very clear. Stanford acknowledges this claim, even though the federal government refuses to acknowledge the Muwekwa. Stanford acknowledges the Muwekwa. They've returned remains to the Muwekwa. They have a land acknowledgement page where they acknowledge that they're... The land acknowledgement page that Stanford has even has a land to discussions of land back as like, we need to go beyond the rhetoric of land acknowledgements and into the practice of land back. And they're using that as rhetoric, which I think is kind of funny. And at the same time, it's a board of trustees. No one owns this land. No one has a title to this land. It's a board of trustees at a college. We're told that a private college's board of trustees make crazy left-wing decisions all the time that they're unaccountable for. So this is like the lowest hanging possible fruit in my mind in terms of moving forward and taking land out of capitalist circulation, which I think is the only, I think I present the case that that's the only way to sustain land over the coming centuries is to take it out of capitalist circulation. And so the smallest little tiny bit of that, right? 
and I talk about all of Stanford land, but, you know, any some amount of Stanford land, right? We're talking about 500 people in the Morkman tribe, I believe is the latest count, who need a place to live on their ancestral land, right? Stanford can provide that very easily. They've made the case themselves. There are precedents. Stanford has ceded land to the U.S. government before, so they've made an exception to the founding covenant for sovereign entities. So I think it's very funny that people treat this as like a less plausible conclusion than something like, oh yeah, we need to take the unionization rate and instead of taking a like multi-decades long decline to under 10%, we need to like triple the unionization rate. That's a pragmatic, you know, smart solution or whatever, but giving back a thousand acres to a politically constituted group by this unaccountable group of trustees is unthinkable or like merely rhetorical or symbolic or provocative. I don't see that. I think there's, they should give these people fucking land to live on. I don't think that's like, they know that. Everyone knows that. We should do that. The fact that they can't, the fact that I don't think they can do that suggests that they are not empowered with reason, that they're not able to act reasonably. And if we have a system that's not able to act reasonably, and I think there's a good case to be made that we do, such as like we're being pushed over an ecological cliff and we're not doing anything about it and we keep walking forward that suggests a system that is unable to use reason, then I think you run into a position like they did with the new left where you have to understand that you're not going to get anywhere by negotiating. And this isn't a system to come to a compromise with, but a system to resist and to ultimately stop. Well, what a good place to end. Yeah, thank you. The word stop. (laughs) Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please... Rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Blotton.